And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello, welcome back to Full Time with Meg Linehan. You are listening to a show all about women's soccer on the Athletic Podcast Network. I am Meg, your host, and I am a national staff writer at The Athletic covering the NWSL and the U.S. Women's National Team. We do have our Challenge Cup final set for this weekend out in Portland with the Thorns and Gotham FC trying to lift the first trophy at play for 2021. We're also nine days out, at least if you're listening to this show on Thursday, the day that we release episodes. So nine days out from the start of the regular season. And the league also, at the same time, has been bouncing from the results of the investigation into the incident that occurred in Houston and then into a lawsuit. And honestly, none of these things are going over well. So today, two segments for you. First, Paul Tenorio from here at The Athletic hops on for a bit to walk everyone through the latest on this new lawsuit filed on behalf of Olivia Moultrie concerning the age limits and the NWSL and antitrust law and all of the other implications this might have on the league, but also CBA negotiations. And then Howard Magdal of The Next and The Nine Newsletter joins to discuss the Challenge Cup final narratives, Carly Lloyd, the landscape of women's sports, kind of a bigger discussion about the NWSL as well. A lot happening. As always, before we get started, your reminder that you can support this podcast and also get all of the NWSL and U.S. Women's National Team coverage at The Athletic, plus everything else we have to offer with the site and app by signing up for a new subscription at theathletic.com slash full time. I promise like I do actually try to write stories, but also I spent six hours on the phone today. So, you know, some weeks are better than the others. Anyway, here is all the latest news for you. So this week, the NWSL did announce their results of their investigation following Sarah Gordon's report of an incident with stadium personnel in Houston following a game on April 9th and much like the investigation into the culture of Utah, very little information was released. So the league did say that an independent investigator was used, but basically here's everything else that was said in the release. So, quote, following multiple interviews with witnesses and a review of the venue security footage, the investigation was closed. Based on the findings of the independent investigator, no disciplinary action will be taken against the club. Because of the confidentiality restrictions in the policy, the league will not have further comment on the investigation itself or the outcome other than to thank those who came forward with their concerns and those who participated in the investigation, end quote. Reaction was obviously not good, and this is a far more nuanced conversation than the new section of this podcast will allow for, but I did want to point out Red Stars player Hannah Davison tweeted this on Wednesday afternoon. Quote, I believe Sarah Gordon. How can one admit that they heard a black player raise legitimate concerns about her and her family being racially profiled, but not have any findings or disciplinary actions for this? 
stop gaslighting black people of their racist encounters as misunderstandings, and stop hiding behind, quote, fostering a safe environment free from harassment, racial bias, and discrimination, end quote, while dismissing the voices of your own players who are holding the league accountable to this promise you had to us and to them to be better. So if you missed the podcast that we did with Steph Young and Sandra Herrera in the more immediate aftermath of this incident, I do recommend going back to that episode for a much longer discussion. But ultimately, I don't think the league needed this investigation to even be to, to be more proactive and transparent on how they could even prevent the chance of such a situation from happening again. As the, again, this Houston incident is not even the first concerning encounter this league has had in a stadium that involved a player. The NWSL is now also facing a lawsuit concerning Olivia Moultrie's right to play in the league, despite the league's position that there has been an age rule in place throughout the history of the NWSL. Again, Paul Tenorio has been covering this story with an article, today's news on Wednesday at least, with, with much larger implications for the NWSL than just one player. But Paul is on the show today and does a lot of work <laughs> to lay out the facts. So we will save the details for now, though if you want to uh, pause this episode now to read some of his work that is in the show notes, so that way you will be fully prepared for our discussion. Over in Europe, Barcelona advanced over PSG and Chelsea accomplished the second leg comeback against Bayern to head to the Champions League final on May 16th. And then finally, a reminder that the Challenge Cup final airs on Saturday, May 8th at 1 p.m. Eastern on Big CBS. So let's start with Paul. In this Olivia Moultrie case, we'll just launch right in. All right, I let's let's talk about this Olivia Moultrie case. Basically, for how about you just lay out? You have really honestly been been covering the story since day one. Like I have been involved, but from a distance. Could you give a lay of the land for folks who have maybe not been following this from kind of the first story that you did to where we are today? <laughs> which is a tall ask, I understand. Yeah, so I'll try to kind of answer the questions that I've seen coming up the most on Twitter about kind of why we are where we are with Olivia Moultrie. And let's start with the fact that everyone, if you don't know who Olivia Moultrie is, you know, she signed or she committed to UNC as an 11-year-old. She signed a, she decided to turn pro and signed a contract with Nike, a marketing deal, which we now know from the lawsuit is a nine-year um, contract with Nike, a significant commitment from Nike. Um, which then meant she was ineligible to play college soccer. And at that point in time, her family moved up to Portland or to the Portland area, and she started to train with the Thorns. Um, I, I think early on as a 13-year-old, she trained with the first team sometimes, but not all of the time. She was playing with their youth teams as well. Um, and now she pretty regularly trains with the first team. She's played in scrimmages with the first team. But because the NWSL says that they have a rule that you cannot sign professionally unless you're 18 and, and that is disputed we'll get into that detail a little bit later she cannot play professionally for the thorns so she can't play in any games that actually count um and and now as a 15 year old she and her agent and others have said there is legitimate interest from the thorns to sign her to a professional contract that yes like most young homegrown players in mls she might not be a starter right away but that she's capable of contributing to the first team and the NWSL has said, no, we have this rule. You cannot sign until you're 18. Why does this matter? Well, in the U.S., there is the Sherman Act. And this antitrust law essentially means that you cannot conspire as different businesses to put on 
um, these types of restrictions over something like age. And so a lawyer, uh, a sports lawyer and professor in the University of San Diego, you know, got wind of this. He had Spencer Wadsworth, uh, Olivia's agent, in to speak to his class about being an agent. They got to discussing the case and he thought, wow, this is this really interesting case study in age limits in professional sports. Because many of us think about age limits in sports and we say, oh, well, the NFL has three and done. Maurice Claret challenged that and failed. And the NBA has one and done. And thus, age limits must be legal. Well, in reality, those age limits exist because they've been collectively bargained. And, and what Maurice Claret fought against was whether or not age limits could be bargained. And he lost that case. Um, and the NBA, after losing in court, to having an age limit, then put it into the CBA. And that's why one and done exists. Um, and so in this case, the NWSL does not have a CBA yet. They're negotiating one, which is yet another twist here. Um, and so they are essentially susceptible to antitrust law. Um, they also, despite saying they are a single entity, you know, they're not a single entity as defined kind of very strictly under the law, just as MLS is not a single entity. They are a hybrid model, meaning that, the, yes, they share business practices. They're all under kind of one umbrella in some ways, but they do make different revenue. They do have different owners. They do um, some make money, some lose money. Um, and so they can't, they aren't protected or likely would not be protected from antitrust law as a single entity, which deep breath means that Olivia Moultrie, has grounds essentially to file this lawsuit. Whether she'll win or not, we'll see. But essentially, it boils down to: is an age limit protected um, for the NWSL by single entity or not? Is this a violation of antitrust laws? Um, and that's kind of where we stand. Yeah. So I will say there is one part of the lawsuit that really was the funniest line to me where it was just the league asserts that she is ineligible and that it has an 18 year old minimum age limit here and after the age rule and that the age rule has been in effect since 2013 but the league has yet to provide evidence of when or how the age rule was enacted precisely what it says or for what purposes it was enacted which feels like the nwsl in one sentence of <laughs> we don't know when this happened we don't know why it happened we don't know where it came from Great. Um, right. Just in terms of there is this concept of, okay, the thorns could potentially like where my kind of thought was, do the thorns actually need to like attempt to sign her in order for a lawsuit to happen? And it seems like the decision has been landed on. No, it's more just the intent is enough. Yeah, I think the fact that the agent has had conversations with the league and been told that she is ineligible to sign was enough to prompt this lawsuit. And there were conversations between um, the attorneys that represent Olivia Moultrie and her family and the league between, you know, over the last few months about whether or not they they didn't want to file a lawsuit, right? Like they, they said to me, the, the lawyer uh, who represents her said to me essentially that, you know, no one wants to have the the quick trigger of, of litigation, right? Like, your their ideal scenario was for Olivia to um, for the league to say you're right this does violate antitrust law Olivia you are immediately eligible to play in the NWSL like that was their main goal and they felt like they presented arguments in kind of correspondence back and forth with the league that would maybe prompt the league to say we want to avoid 
litigation and the costs that come with it over something that we may potentially lose. Um, and also that some people I spoke to who are not involved in this case directly, you know, that there is a level of why is the NWSL fighting this, right? Like this is not necessarily a an anti-ownership stance, like a stance that ownership shouldn't like, right? Like they, like age limits, opening that up kind of helps increase your talent pool, you know, when we talk about CBAs. So there are all these interesting elements to it. And, you know, I think that um, after they kind of exhausted the other options, they, they decided, no, like this is what we're going to have to do in order to force it. And, and Meg, I would note like that, the line you read, um, regarding the the rule, does it exist? Does it not? When did it happen? Like it's we get very American soccer in that area because it also was like, um, we have the operations manual from 2013 and 2014 because it leaked via the professional referees organization website, yeah. which means that we could go back and look <laughs> right. at the yeah. rule. Yeah, like I had literally downloaded those operation manuals off of the pro website because they were up. Like, I mean, yeah, the stuff that we're trying to work with in order to verify like what has been in place, because again, you know, we don't even have a, a current version of roster rules really in NWSL to work from. So we are limited in terms of trying to verify what uh, players or agents or like really anyone was working with from 2013 on. And it's really only because I covered the league back in the day and literally found uh, like a zip drive that I had from, I think, 2015, where I just dumped a whole bunch of NWSL documents on it. So... Kudos to you to knowing where <laughs> where that zip drive was. I, I I have a drawer of zip drives. I have no idea what's on any of them. Yeah, yeah. So I just go through them one by one when I'm looking for old stuff. But I, it's just such a fascinating case here because I think, you know, we have to remember too, like the NWSL is very much a growing league. It's evolving just as, you know, I think they're very similar, very similar to Major League Soccer in kind of how they've evolved the roster rules. And you have to remember, MLS didn't have a homegrown rule until... 2007 when they launched the academies is when they first started kind of playing around with player development and and what would that look like and the academies started to become specialized through u.s soccer it wasn't mls that launched it um certainly with mls's support and over the last decade plus what the homegrown rule looks like has changed and what development looks like has changed and you know we've learned a lot in that space and the nwsl there is no homegrown rule you know, they're, they're kind of in that phase where MLS was early, which is like, let's create permanence. Let's expand our talent pool and, and develop the professionals that we have, um, which, by the way, MLS is still very much working on. Yeah. Um, you don't ever stop working on these things. You just add other things to make it messier. And like that's, I think, part of what the fear is for the NWSL, right, is, is that idea of like adding things and making it messier when you're still trying to advance as you are. Right. And and so I understand that they may feel like, okay, we don't want to add homegrowns yet. We're not prepared for that yet. Let's try to kind of compartmentalize. Um, and But I, I think what confuses me is when you're confronted with the possibility of a lawsuit that has to alter your timeline and your, your kind of approach to the situation. And I just feel like um, kind of the most interesting side note to everything that we're talking about with Olivia Moultrie is like 
there is going to be an altered timeline and it's going to be yeah. a CBA. And I think that this lawsuit is very helpful for the NWSL Players Association. Yeah, I want to talk about the CBA. So let's start first with we did get a, a statement from the NWSL and I want to read that first because they lean heavily on the fact that they are currently negotiating a CBA with the Players Association. It says, the league is engaged in collective bargaining with the NWSL Players Association, which is the appropriate place, according to federal labor law, for issues regarding terms and conditions of employment to play out. Age requirements are a common feature of many men's and women's professional leagues in the U.S. and abroad. The rules that govern league operations are in place to support players and team operators and ensure the NWSL remains the premier women's soccer league in the world. We will vigorously defend our league against this litigation because it seeks to change a longstanding rule and interferes with the collective bargaining process. So a lot there. <laughs> a lot. Yeah, definitely a lot there. <laughs> a lot there. In terms of the C, I think I think you know we've been talking this morning as the story has kind of been changing and and obviously you know we were able to read the lawsuit and all of that kind of stuff, but ultimately it does kind of feel like this is going to accelerate the timeline of the CBA, which is honestly not a bad side benefit here. No, it's a great one, right? If you're in the NWSLPA, you're rubbing your hands together for multiple reasons, in my opinion. One, you've now lit a fire under the butt of the owners to get a CBA done. Typically, at least in my experience covering CBA negotiations in MLS, the owners slow play things. Um, the exception was when they were going to do force majeure recently and they were talking about a lockout, they kind of reversed roles and the owners were trying to kind of push the players to a deal faster because basically whoever has the most amount of leverage, they want to slow play things. They want to drag it out as long as possible and then... I'll create a really, really fast deadline and and then push through all the things that they had been slow playing, right? And in this case now, suddenly, I feel like the players have leverage because the league is going to want a CBA to occur as fast as possible to end this lawsuit. Because the moment that this age limit is put into a CBA, the, the case is over. It's done. It's mm -hmm. cooked. Um, and so there's leverage there, one. Two, again, I've spoken to lawyers who are saying, if you're the Players Association, you're sitting there and you're saying... Yes, I would love an age limit because the 100% of the Players Association is over the age of 18. Yeah. And any players who get introduced to the player pool from under the age of 18 take a job away from somebody who is over 18. And so that group, by consensus, is not going to want to bargain for more competition, you know, necessarily. And so... Something that should have been the owners saying, we're, we're holding this over your head and using it as leverage for another point. Suddenly the players have it, you know, now is saying, look, you want an age limit? Okay, well, we want more allocation money put in or we want a higher minimum salary or whatever it is that is the, their most important point. So I think two really important leverage um, triggers kind of have, have been prompted by this lawsuit in favor of the NWSLPA. So... Maybe maybe Olivia will be getting some high fives around the training facility yeah. um, from, from those who are involved in this bargaining process. But certainly it's an interesting part. And I think, Meg, we should, you know, I, I do want to note that this lawsuit is going to take time to play out, right? All lawsuits do. We, we've learned that, certainly. Yes, that yes. lawsuits last a long time. Yeah. Um, there is one area here where they're, they're basically asking um, for an injunction. Like, basically, the idea is... That they believe the court should say, hey, 
we believe that this will this does violate antitrust law uh, on some level that we have to determine whether or not you're protected by these these and these reasons and so in the interim you cannot have an age limit um, in the interim you know we're going to rule from the bench that you know she's eligible to play right um, and maybe maybe it's because they can't locate an actual rule that's written down in the rule book that that happens um, that is probably kind of the real play here from Olivia Moultrie right it's like Get her on the field as soon as possible. And it makes it a lot harder to reverse once she's already on the field. And so I think that's kind of the the real play here. Because, again, the timeline with the CBA and how long a normal court case would drag on, they don't, they're not nearly in sync. Even if the CBA process took a whole year, it would probably be resolved before this court case. Yeah, I mean, I think also just the bigger picture of this lawsuit is really interesting because I do fundamentally think like this isn't like a test case of like let's ultimately impact the NWL for I think everyone kind of involved in this. It really is just like get one player on the field. And yes, it has an impact that is nice or whatever, but like fundamentally the priority of this is not necessarily showing the NWSL is not a single entity league or or along these lines like that is just the argument for age limits shouldn't exist so it is kind of focused all around one player who I think also you know is fundamentally a 15 year old and is not necessarily in full control of deciding a lawsuit (laughs) is being filed in her name so it is just it's a really weird nuanced complicated situation just in terms of There's now a lot of – the one thing that just keeps sticking out in my brain is the way that the language in this lawsuit talks about her puts a lot of pressure on her and, like, also kind of implies, well, she could be making Olympic rosters right now or the national team rosters, and we haven't seen that. The general consensus, and it has been for a while, is like, hey, she could could probably hang in this league. Is she going to be an immediate starter for Portland Thorns or – get significant minutes or suddenly start getting national team call. Like there's nothing truly stopping her from getting national team call-ups right now. Like that is a different system, obviously, but it puts a lot of pressure on a player who might be in fact very good, but is not necessarily at, (laughs) you know, starting NWSL levels, but should, you know, potentially be competing for a spot on the roster. Like that's kind of the level of of play that we're talking about. But this kind of like big inflated language around it, I think just makes it really tough for Olivia herself. I mean, this is not anything foreign for Olivia. Let's start there. Yeah. Like, I mean, she's they've, you know, she's been under the spotlight for a long time because of the way her whole career, I guess we'll call it, has been handled right from the announcement that she accepted a scholarship at 11 to the New York Times article at 13 when she did sign with Nike and kind of all of that. Right. But I and I do think it's worth pointing out, like this is the risk of the model that exists in global soccer. Right. There are kind of we'll, and we'll use MLS because I think the, those names are more familiar in North America. There are kind of two pathways, extremes on the pathway. There's a hole in between here, but there are two extremes that tend to usually when you are a big hyped prospect, you usually tend to go to one side of the extreme or the other um, because there there is no in between for you. Like you have to either fail or succeed. Yeah. And so there is like Freddie Adu, 
who signed an MLS at 14 and was doing commercials with Pelé and was the next Pelé and all those things. And what happened to him? He hopped around from continent to continent. He never really stuck. He, he certainly never lived up to the hype um, that, you know, and, and con, you know, conversely from NWSL, MLS was like the opposite with Freddie, right? Like all of their marketing was around this kid. He was playing in front of sold out crowds. They had him on national TV and it, and things got out of hand very, very quickly. On the other side of that is with those years of experience in between that I was talking about of how player development changed was Alfonso Davies, who signed with Vancouver at age 15, was brought along very slowly by the coach at the time. You know, he was playing as a substitute as a 15-year-old. He very, I don't think maybe ever started as a 15-year-old or, you know, kind of mostly bit appearances. By 16, he started 10 or 11 or 12 games and was getting integrated. And then it was like, okay, Alfonso Davies is the real thing. Now he's a starter. Now he's an all-star. And now he's at Bayern Munich, right? Yeah. And so what will Olivia Moultrie be? We don't know. But like there is a possibility that she is Freddie Adu and that the hype and the pomp and everything around her will lead as much to her downfall as her ability. Because Freddie Adu was a good player, right? It was like everything else that kind of pulled him away from actually developing. And then there's, you know, could she could she be Alfonso Davies? Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. You know, perhaps she goes and at 16 years old suddenly is starting in midfield for the Thorns. <laughs> You know, stuff has to happen in between. And I think her point in this lawsuit is I can't get to a point of starting at NWSL if I'm not given a chance to play. And then but the league rightfully has a fear of like signing somebody who's 15. Can they do the things that MLS didn't do for Freddie Adu, right? Like, can you oversee somebody's development? That's not just a soccer development. It's mental development it's the off-field development it's understanding how to shelter you from the marketing deals at the right time and all of these different aspects that's inherent on the club that's inherent on the league that's inherent on the family and you know to your point i think there are some people saying is it being handled now correctly and could it be handled better would it be handled better if she did turn pro and and that's the hard part of this is like we don't really have an answer until it happens and it's like you know is it is it right to make that gamble or not? Right. And fundamentally, when you're talking about a 15-year-old player, like legally, she cannot make that decision on her own. Just truly. So there is yeah. that factor as well. It, it, it's just, it is a very, I don't know, it's a very complicated situation. And I just think, like, yes, there are also other factors too in terms of you know, this is a young white player trying, like, there. there's just, it also feels like it's kind of affirming the whole <laughs> pay-to-play discussion as well. Like, there is this larger context that we are putting her in as well. And that is also informing, I think, the approach here. But I, I just think in terms of, obviously, this is going to be a long-term development, but putting it in the context of the NWSL. Also, just the landscape of women's soccer is different than the men's side, right? Like, the traditional path has been NCAA soccer, right? That UNC deal at age 11 was, yes, a huge story, but that was, like, the traditional path until the Nike deal happened. And then that's where we are now seeing. (laughs) But, but, you know, I do think in my my original story, we kind of, 
discuss this is that traditional path is changing, right? Mm -hmm. And we're seeing more, it started changing with one and done's or even kind of one and done, like going to college and never playing and then going to NWSL. Um, And so this would be kind of the next iteration of that, but it's happening so fast. It's like, we're, we're just kind of a few years into seeing really young players go to college for a year and leave immediately to turn pro as soon as they turn 18. So I, I think everyone kind of expected that to la- that phase to last longer, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, we'll we have, were at the Trinity Rodman right, stage. Right. It went from like Lindsay to Mal to Trinity. And then it was yeah. like, boom, now it's like a 15 year old. Right. Yeah. And so we haven't like, it's kind of like, you know, messing with how we think about this. Um, but yeah, I mean, she's the, the reality is like she's going to be thrown into a lot of different conversations. Um, she's going to be representative of a lot of different things in women's soccer and global soccer. Um, and and whatever decision happens, like she also could decide, you know what, I'm going to go to Europe. And if I'm going to be somebody who is essentially an apprentice and not be able to play professional games, then maybe I'll go to France and play in the academy at PSG and play in, you know, scrimmages there or Lyon or something versus staying in Portland. I mean, but like that then opens up a whole other door of kind of this that I'm sure she'll become representative of, of like, are the best players staying in the NWSL? Are they driving the best players away to the European leagues, you know? So it's a difficult spot for a young player. And, um, you know, certainly having your name along with your, your father's name on a lawsuit against the league that you want to play in, I think only adds to that. It doesn't take it away. And, and, and surely it would, it would change expect it has changed expectations around how good she is that's for sure looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24/7 US based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard it right you can talk to a real human in customer service anytime sounds like a real game changer if you ask me Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. One one last question for you, just in terms of it doesn't seem like there's maybe like an immediate next step, but I think my general sense is like next step is not necessarily tied to the lawsuit itself. It's tied to the CBA and seeing now if that timeline does get accelerated. Is that the next thing that we should be watching for? Or do you think that there's maybe something else specifically when it comes to this case? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we'll look at what the first, um, certainly what it looks like the first time a judge gets a hold of this and makes a decision about what the timeline is for the case of when they actually start hearing arguments. But yeah, I mean, for me, Knowing from this lawsuit that the first offer has been made on the CBA table, the thing I'm most interested in is when's the first counter? Because my assumption is that first offer came from the players who who started this these talks. Um, that would seem like the kind of natural course of things. But even, even let's say it's the owners. It doesn't really matter. 
you know, yeah, I, I think I want to know when the counter comes and what that looks like. <laughs> yeah. and, and can that line stay true that there's no age discussion in any counter offer? Because my guess is there's going to be an age discussion in that. And at that point, I wonder, you know, if those two, if those two sides can agree essentially that an age limit will exist in a CBA, even if it's not finalized, how, how does that change things? That, that would be really interesting for, for me, um, to find out. So I, I think, yeah, like I'm, I'm most interested in kind of getting the, the timeline on the, the counter offer of the CBA. All right. Well, I definitely appreciate you joining the show. Short notice. This was definitely an early morning project for you in terms of reporting it out, but also obviously it is kind of a, it has been funny how my reporting on the CBA has now finally kind of like dovetailed into the story. So we have been on kind of like two parallel train tracks that have now finally crossed. So I do appreciate the time in walking it through because, again, legal documents immediately mean that this is a much more complicated situation <laughs> than. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I apologize because usually when um, our train tracks dovetail, it turns into a, a huge crash in our lives. <laughs> Yeah. So I'm very sorry, Meg. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Paul. Well, thank you. And uh, we will we will stay tuned on more from this for sure. Thanks, Meg. Thank you again to Paul for the time and the explanation. Obviously, a lot, a lot going into this one. So it definitely, we have already started to see some of the statements coming out around the CBA from both the Players Association and the league itself. So this is going to change some of the conversations around the collective bargaining agreement for sure. Now, next up, we've got Howard McDowell again of the Next and the Nine newsletter and someone who also does a lot of coverage of women's sports kind of across the board at at any number of places. Um, Howard and I go back. (laughs) That's where we're going to start. Here's Howard. Hi, Howard. Hi. So before we get started, I do want to take us back to how we met. Because <laughs> yes. I, I also, you know, we go back a while, but we met at the parade for the 2015 uh, World Cup. Well, we met there, but well, in person. I knew your work. <laughs> I'm saying like, like I online had met you. And sure. so I was just really excited. I, as I remember it, Jonathan Tannenwald brought me over to you or you over to me. And we got to say hello. And I was just very excited because I was like, I read you in by sports. And this was an opportunity to finally chat in person. And then you recruited me to my first full time sports job. I forced you out of the private sector <laughs> and into the growing, thriving business of uh, sports journalism. Yes. And uh, you, well, I mean, you undersell it, really. You were my first hire. That, okay, fair, fair. I mean, let's just talk about this. Like, I, you know, we were putting together a team to cover women's sports. And I'm just like, all right, who is going to be managing editor? And that's got to be Meg. And then I kept convincing you until you came. Yeah. And it was very exciting. Then, you know, I moved to New York City and a lot of things have happened <laughs> in between. One or two. You know, just a couple things. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I did want to start there because I want to start us off with some NWSL talk, but I, I do want to turn the conversation at some point to some larger thoughts about women's sports coverage because we have both, mm-hmm. 
you know, work together, but also have worked side by side, even as we are not necessarily at the same spot. We have started at the same spot. We have worked together. We are, you know, like we've always kind of been in conversation. So I obviously want to talk about coverage as it's one of my favorite things to talk about. But I do want to start us off with NWSL, which is a league that we both cover and likes to do a lot of a lot of things all at the same time. Let's start with <laughs> soccer, because in theory, that's what we should be talking about. But, you know, I had heard it's the National Women's Soccer League. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah I think I get that. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. Um, Challenge Cup final is this weekend. And, you know, I think Thorns are going into this game as pretty heavy favorites. They are now hosting the game. There was a fun whole subplot the other day of this game potentially moving to Philadelphia, which I spent a lot of time on. And then by the end of the day, also Portland was allowed to have fans in the stadium. So it was kind of this whole like, okay, I guess I went on a a wild goose chase for a while for not a lot of effort. But um, (laughs) in terms of the narratives here, though, right? Like we've had 2020 Challenge Cup was like also the challenge cup of narratives where we have Houston dash coming up, right. And really fighting for a trophy for their first trophy. And now we're Mm kind of getting the same thing with Gotham FC now known, you know, the new formerly known as sky blue FC Um, thorns also have their own narrative in terms of this is a team that has been building to win trophies. But what, what are your takes on some of the like bigger storylines just in terms of, someone who's been around the league and also been covering Sky Blue FC, now Gotham, for a while. Um, what folks should be looking for in terms of, like, the stories around this game? I, I mean, I I think the way you described it really captures it. Like, if you think about Portland, Portland is very much a blue blood of this league, and it's hard to argue otherwise. But they undertook this rebuild over the last few years, and now it feels like we're on the cusp of it coming to fruition. The flip side of that is, is sky blue. Now Gotham is what, whatever the opposite of a blue blood is. That's what sky blue has been for the duration of the league. And now this Gotham team is not just having an opportunity to be a vital participant in the league. I know that sounds like a low bar, but that's really what they were aiming at was making sure they weren't left behind. Well, now you have a chance to plant your flag and say, no, we are one of the teams to be reckoned with. And I really, I I love the team that Elise has put together there. I think that combination of veterans and also youth has really made a difference. I feel like she's taken multiple shots at high ceiling players. And that's not always going to work, right? Like like Mal Pugh, it didn't work. You know, but somebody like Mitch Purse, it did. Mm -hmm. And so getting your team to this point as quickly as they have is, uh, to me, the biggest part of it. Because I I remember, I think you were there with me. It was the last match of the season, the one win. Yes. In the pouring rain, you know. Yes. And, and, And that was... Like, well, at least this otherwise lost season in every conceivable way, at least we had this one positive to look at uh, was what the attitude was of the team when we talked to them after. Uh, but to to come this far this fast and to be able to do it in a league that is so hyper competitive, that's so difficult to get into that top tier because 
there are these established teams, it just feels like a really, really big deal. And, and you also don't know how often opportunities like this come up to add to your trophy days. Right. And so, you know, that matters too. Uh, but a year and, and I did, you know, we'll talk a little uh, about Carly Lloyd, I think, but a year that can be kind of a capstone for her on multiple fronts who would have predicted that? Yeah. Nobody would have predicted that. Yeah. I The one thing that I do want to talk about here too is, so I was at the game on Sunday out at Montclair where, mm-hmm. you know, we, <laughs> I don't think anyone really thought that two zero zero draws were actually going to decide the East <laughs> in terms of who went to the final. They did, yeah. but you know, in, so I'm, I'm literally in like the post game zoom from the parking garage because you can't obviously go to post game. And sure. Caprice Didasco, who is arguably, I would say, one of the nicest players in the league, gives this postgame yeah. quote of, you know, we want to be we want to be feared. And first of all, she says it in this like the sweetest. She's like, we really want to be feared. And I'm like, you do not sound intimidating right now. <laughs> but there is kind of this sense of, OK, the Gotham rebrand has allowed for like this new vibe around the team. And it does kind of feel like the team wants to be intimidating. Right. And there's also obviously a lot of narrative around Portland, too. And Mm -hmm. it does just kind of strike me that now there is an appeal to being not necessarily villains, but that there is this instinct of, like, respect comes with fear. (laughs) And that is something that we aspire to, which is a very different vibe than women's soccer or women's sports in general. Like we're starting to get into that, like we can have these narratives of of villains or the bad guys of the league or like the domination and and Portland and, you know, North Carolina has traditionally held that role. But it feels Mm kind of good to me. The the idea that we're not cheering for everyone all the time is somehow something that has taken a long time to take root in women's sports. And there's a lot of reasons, I think, that we could get into, uh, among them the coverage, uh, among them uh, a a league uneasiness with that idea. Uh, But that there can be villains is actually a good thing. And it doesn't even need to be a villain as in, like, this is a terrible person. That's not what it's about, but it's about oh God, like if I'm a fan of one team, I hate when that player comes to town because she always scores, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it, it, it's that's part and parcel for the fun of this game. And, and, and just the idea, of, the idea of women's soccer missing that, the idea of women's sports missing that is a critical component to everything you can imagine from the intensity of the matches themselves, which by the way, and you know this, People have hated each other as long as there's been an yeah. NWSL yeah. and prior to that. Like it's not like the hate is new, but it's keeping the hate on the down low that has been part of this instead of amplifying it and letting people know that it's okay to be upset about the other team. It's you know, I guess part of it is you know the national team too, and everyone's kind of pulling together in that sense. And so the league becoming more and more international, I think, plays a part with that as well. That there isn't just simply this uh, one unified team that people kind of think about as like being dispatched into equal parts throughout the league. I think that helps, 
but it matters, right? And it matters. It matters because if there is not that element of intensity, there is an exhibition feel to the matches themselves for the fans. It's never been that way for the players. But when it's that way for the fans too, you're going to feel the energy change in the crowd. It's just it's just vital. I, I think it's as important as anything we've seen over the last couple of years here. Yeah, and I also think like there's still room to be, you know, before everybody walks into the stadium, you could probably have a beer with a, a supporter from another team. But then as soon as right. you get in that stadium, like all <laughs> it becomes yes. a different conversation, right? Like you can still have that kind of bigger we're pulling from the league as a as an overall concept mm-hmm. slash asking the league to be better <laughs> as an overall right. concept. And then when when the game starts, like, okay, th- this is now a separate thing. So I do but, uh, can I just like it's not it's not a magic trick. It's again is this every time these types of things come up with women's sports specifically, there's this like, well how do we do it? And when it's like you do it in the same fashion that like this has worked for college sports forever that you can be a fan of Georgetown or Syracuse and then you could be pulling for the Big East Conference in the NCAA tournament and no I know Syracuse is in the ACC now and no I choose not to acknowledge that but the same thing is the case over and over again there are these understand that there's the greater good and it doesn't change the parochial desire to beat the other team uh, you know, you watch Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi go at each other in the WNBA for years, these best friends for 20 years. Yeah. But Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi will get at each other yeah. when the Storm are playing against the Mercury. One does not preclude the other. Right. It's not a magic trick. Right. But also, they will get very, very intoxicated on Instagram Live with their respective <laughs> partners and create three hours of amazing content. <laughs> Which we are all grateful for. Yes. And again, that's where the world comes back together. Yes, yes. All right. So you brought up Carly Lloyd. I'll just I'll just launch you with Carly Lloyd. Thoughts? I'm so <laughs> glad that you mentioned that. Um, you know, I, I, as you know, it does not, it's not hard to get me to talk about Carly Lloyd. Um, and so I just sort of think of it in these terms. Here we are in 2021. This is almost certainly the last go around, certainly for her on the national team side and probably on the club team side as well. Although Carly reserves the right to change her mind. And in the event that the Philadelphia Eagles don't come calling, maybe that's what she ends up wanting to do. But it comes back to, for me, the thing that, you know, I've been saying for years, which is that Carly Lloyd is the Tarazi of women's soccer in the sense that she is a killer in the sense that, she and there are a lot of soccer purists who will get upset about the space she occupies and the things she doesn't do. And to me, when you have this track record of scoring when it matters again and again and again, that takes precedent over everything else. It does for me anyway. And so we're now in a moment where if Tokyo happens, Carly Lloyd has an opportunity to win a club trophy and a gold medal in what may be the final year of her playing career. Something as a fellow New Jerseyan makes me unspeakably sad to contemplate. (laughs) I like to cover Carly Lloyd as much as I like to cover anybody in the sports landscape. But (laughs) you put her in a position where she can make that difference 
and she will. You know, that's the that's the thing that I feel it is the guarantee. Yeah. Or as close as there is to a guarantee in professional sports Um, in the same way. And I I use Tarazi as the example. Tarazi won her first 13 road elimination playoff games, which is one of my favorite stats. Like, you know, there are all these people who talk about Kobe Bryant in the sense of being, you know, that, uh, you know, that clutch performer. Mm -hmm. And. And, and he had great numbers, but Tarazi actually was the one who came through every time. The only loss she's ever had on the road was the Schubert Mass game. <laughs> and again, you, you go back to Carly Lloyd and it's the same thing again and again and again. She has carried her teams in those critical moments. And so that's what I expect. And so I, I guess, you know, we talked about storylines. Enjoy it while you can. Right. You know, these players have vanishingly short careers. You don't know how long they're going to be here for and enjoy it while you can, because it disappears. And there are players I think about all the time who we had the chance to watch regularly. I think about Lauren holiday and the fact that you hear somebody who I just, the, the raw pleasure of seeing her perform and then she retired mm-hmm. and, you know, understandably, but it is missed. So enjoy Carly Lloyd while you can. Yeah. I mean, she also just hit, 300 caps, right? Which is now Mm -hmm. feels like one of the most impossible (laughs) tasks in international soccer, just because the game has changed, right? Like above her on this list, Christine Lilly, who Mm. arguably probably could still play (laughs) soccer if she, if she chose, I mean, she used to come out to Boston breaker training sessions and they would have to shorthand her team because she was still (laughs) so good. Um, so like that's, and then Christy, Christy Pierce. So, and like Carly's kind of within distance of, of Christy Pierce. Like there is a potential that that number could get reached, but this is, you know, we, we kind of know like there is an end date at, at some point for Carly, Mm -hmm. but at, at the same time, I just, I'm curious as, as someone who is obviously a Carly from, proponent and I'm trying to play mm-hmm. neutral here because I think sure. there also is a lot of discussion of has has the competition increased for her mm-hmm. roster spot right and obviously not a lot of like no playing time in 2020 really due to surgery right but also this has been kind of the narrative of this time is that the postponement of the Olympics has allowed for players like her and Rapino to actually get rest and recovery in <laughs> mm-hmm. to allow them to fight for this roster spot. So in terms of, is there, is there an argument, I guess, that, that you want to make in terms of like the intangibles potentially of, we know the clutch big game performance happens, like that track record is there right? against, okay, if, you know, there are, potentially five, six forward spots and, and like certain players are locks. And if the decision is between like Carly, Alex, Katarina Macaria, like, you know, there are players in this conversation where mm-hmm. someone's getting left off a roster, no matter what, because we've only got somebody teams. Olympic worthy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. More than one. Yes. I, I mean, there's no question about that. And look, that is the embarrassment of riches. That is our development system in the United States. And I would argue in a couple of ways, right? 
So, you know, you brought up Megan Rapinoe. And that's a that's a great example because there was conversation whether Pino would be on the 2019 team or not. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you bet on you bet on greatness. I, I don't I don't know how else to to put it, but that's something that I feel really strongly about. These are going to be small samples, right? This is not a hundred games uh, where you're going to be able to see over time uh, somebody who's able to make a difference day in and day out. Maybe you're having a different conversation about that. This is going to be a situation, a scenario where about a half a dozen different plays are going to mean the difference between we're out in the quarterfinals and we're on uh, the top of the podium winning a gold medal. And so if you're going to need somebody to bring maximum pressure at the critical moment, I just think you can't do any better than the person who has done it again and again and again and betting on that happening in that moment. And it may not happen because again, you're still talking about a sample size of a handful of moments, but I know, I know where, where my money would go to. Yeah. And, and then I, I'll give you one other argument that I think is significant, which is to say these times are vanishingly small. And maybe this is not so much like a Vlatko reason to take it into account as it is for like, like you and me, mm-hmm. but we're only going to get so many chances to see greatness. Like, like on the, on the basketball side with Diana Tarazi and Sue Bird, you know, if, if they want to play till they're 50, you know, well, we're only going to get to see them for a certain period of time. And they're going to have a legacy for a long, long time to come after they've gone. And we could go see the United States win a gold medal easily, easily with the players behind them on the depth chart. It's a little different here because by no means is anything assured right. going to the Olympics uh, in soccer, where it's a far more competitive group at the top. But it's a chance to see Carly Lloyd for a finite amount of time and getting that opportunity once more, uh, to be frank, was the same reason why I thought Megan Rapinoe needed to be on the 2019 team, why, why she needs to obviously be on this one as well. Um, I think that there are iconic performers that ought to be with us for as long as they are at that level and willing to show up. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll let you, that's, that's your piece. That's your piece. Like I'm not, (laughs) I get it. I get it. Also, again, I, I've been very on the record of like, I have no idea how Vlaco is approaching this. So I'm, I'm very willing to be like, I couldn't tell you. I think ultimately like the roster comes down to where I'm, I'm leaning is it's going to be a very conservative approach to an Olympic Mm -hmm. roster just because again, even though the cycle has been kind of messed up due to the postponement, typically the Olympic rosters are a little more conservative than a full 23-player roster. So if I had to probably bet money, I would expect Carly Lloyd and obviously Megan Rapinoe. Like, I don't think, I honestly don't think Rapinoe is a question. Now I think the bigger question is Tobin Heath and if she's going to be back from injury or not. Speaking of another player from New Jersey. It's right, of course, (laughs) New Jersey represent. I mean, Tobin Heath, at least, seems like it's a matter of if she's healthy, she's on the roster um, based on, you know, uh, what Vlatko has said 
But I would just point out the other thing when you talk about a conservative approach to the roster, and that is to say that with so little action in 2020, and, and he's differed from Jill Ellis in this way, right? Jill Ellis is always was always talking about sort of striking the balance between finding your best players and making sure that those players had chances to gel together. And where do you kind of flip that tipping point over the course of the cycle? Mm-hmm. And and we haven't seen that here. And partly because you can't, right? right? <laughs> yeah. But partly because it doesn't seem like that was even his approach before this all happened, you know, before COVID. And so if you're not concerned about that, then how are you getting that cohesion? Well, you get that cohesion with players who played together before. Yeah. I mean, again, it's I, I feel like we're ultimately going to be going in the same circles until the roster actually hits. But until especially yeah. at least we get the June camp roster, I think is going to be a far more instructive look. But again, the one nice yeah. thing I think that we can trust is when Vlako Andonovsky says, I'm watching every NWSL game. I'm watching all of this footage. I'm watching games in, in Europe, et cetera. Like we know he's doing that. <laughs> there is no question that he is watching every single piece of video that is available to him. He, he does not take shortcuts. No. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's shift over into some coverage conversations because again, um, we, we have both been working together in some capacity for, six-ish years at this point, but Very true. I do want to talk to you in terms of just kind of overall, I, I think especially, you know, I had this conversation with Chantel as well, our, our WNBA writer, sure. but I also just find it fascinating to compare notes sometimes <laughs> across the mm-hmm. two leagues. And NWSL has kind of had this trajectory over the past couple of months where Everything was trending in the right direction, right? And then all of a sudden we're we're taking hits along the way. And it mm-hmm. a lot of them are kind of self-inflicted things where the league could be more proactive, right? Like we're gonna bring in the the investigation of the Houston Dash situation in here. The policy for trans athletes was not a successful launch by any stretch of the imagination. Um, broadcasts have had issues. I mean, like, it's kind of this whole, Mm -hmm. if you look on Twitter right now, the conversation around the league is not necessarily one of just like everyone being like, wow, this great thing is happening instead of just kind of like what is happening. (laughs) 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 Right. Like, (laughs) which is not the tagline you want for your league. Right. So I don't even know necessarily if I have, but just what, what is your vibe around the NWSL right now? Because I think, Overall, the one is just, it feels like we're kind of at this constant level of frustration right now, and it is not pleasant for a lot of people. I mean, I listen, I think you're hitting on it extremely well, which is to say that a moment that ought to be felt as success is far more mitigated than it ought to be. I, I mean, if you sort of draw back a little bit and you say, and you, and you just even think comparatively to a couple of years ago, the fact that there are all these people buying in on an ownership group level, the fact that there is, I mean, I'm just laughing because you remember every year it was like, gee, is there going to be a television deal? (laughs) And if so, are we going to learn about it two hours before USA versus Germany? 
Yeah. When everyone who would potentially be able to cover it is otherwise engaged cover. Well, I mean, the, you know, the ESPN so, deal uh, dropped right. for 2019 while <laughs> everyone was in France for the World Cup. I remember. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just so from that perspective, and instead you've got this security, this multi-year deal, this um, distribution, all of these things that are not small. You know, the fact that we used to have conversations with the lead about, gee, when are you going to get a sponsor? A sponsor. Shout out National then, Mango Board, my favorite, no, my favorite no. thing to call back to. <laughs> and again, that's not where where things are. And so part of this is sort of a healthy thing, right? It's we're not having that conversation about survival anymore, which, you know, thank God, right? To not have to consistently try and get people past, oh, are we sure there's going to be a lead this yeah. year before yeah. you can you know do a story about it? But that also kind of frees you up for things like, you know, a collective bargaining agreement and those conversations taking place because now there's an understanding. I, you know, I, I asked Lisa about this in her availability it was, you know, look, is this the time that to have CBA talks because the lead is moving into a more substantial uh, financial footprint. And she didn't really answer that question. And that's a sign of growth, right? Like to be a lead that's bringing lots of money and is reluctant to share it with the players, you know, well, we've seen MLB do that for well over a century. So, you know, <laughs> welcome to the club. It's very exciting. Yeah. And so, so I like, I'm very mixed about it. Like the, that the vibe isn't universally positive seems in part to me a function of success, but yes, I do think there are a fair amount of unforced errors that go into it as well. And I'm not sure when you talked about sort of comparing, I don't know that NWSL is necessarily taking advantage of the women's sports momentum quite as fully. That's a really, mm -hmm. I want to talk about this in terms of, there has been this groundswell, right? Like, I mean, I think about the coverage of the NCAA, the inequality, like the weight room conversation, right? Like that whole thing, just in terms of how that <laughs> captured attention in a way that I don't think it would have, like even five years ago, right? Like it would have just kind of gone out into the void and people would have been like, oh, that's bad. And then it would have- Even two years ago. Yeah. It would have been a thing you and I were texting about mad. Yeah, <laughs> that's where it would have- lived probably like we would have been like hey can we write about this to certain places and they would have been like no nah, we're okay right? right um but just in terms of like we've seen it from a sponsor side right like let's i mean i remember a story that i wrote for the, the spot that we were both working at that was like mm -hmm. sponsorships and symbolism are the problem for nwsl and now i feel like the sponsorships good Great spot. TV, great spot. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now it's kind of, I guess, this kind of bigger concept, right, of the symbolism here where you can say, look at all this good stuff we're doing. I mean, I just wrote that whole story about, like, not everything needs to be game changing, right? Right. But <laughs> you are making good, solid progress. But also there is kind of fundamentally this bigger conversation of, who is the progress for, especially in the NWSL? Because right at the moment, the way that a lot of this discussion is going is the progress is happening for white 
cisgender players and not Mm -hmm. for your entire league. You're leaving a significant chunk of your fan base behind. You are alienating them in many ways. And part of this is just the league has had a bad track record when it comes to transparency, when it comes to trust, when it comes to giving them the benefit of the doubt because we don't get a lot of information. So people leap to the worst possible conclusion. Right. There is a larger problem right now, which is that people leap to the worst possible conclusion across much of American society, in large part because over the last however many years, that has been a prudent bet to make. And it's a situation where the lead needs to build trust in order to show that it is part of a solution and not part of a problem as it relates to its existence writ large. And I'm sort of using that as a framework to sort of dive into what you're talking about, which is to say that things like a collective bargaining agreement, things like transparency, all of these things go toward making sure that stakeholders feel heard and that they are part of a process that allows for financial equity, that it allows for opportunity equity. It's in a, it's almost baked into the league and not almost it's baked into the league from its very beginning that there was a different level financially alone for national team players than for non-national team players, that there are separate uh, players associations for both is not a small thing. And so trying to take that framework and there were very logical reasons why it worked that way. And we know this, you know, I mean, listen, it's easy to look at the minimum salary now and be like, that's absurdly low. And then it's a little bit different to look at it. When I remember sitting in a gym, talking to players at sky blue who were making $6,000 for a year and to say, well, geez, it's, it's more than tripled over this five year period. Both can be true. It can be absolutely progress and it can be not nearly enough all at the same time. Uh, but I certainly know if, if I'm a player who feels like I'm not part of the financial rising tide, every single time a new ownership group pops into our email boxes, that's got to be a jab to that player who's sitting there thinking, how am I going to make enough of a living to continue to play professional soccer even now here in 2021? And the same is true whenever the league does something without an explanation, without reading players in. Um, you know, again, I, I, I know I keep going back to the WNBA side, but the biggest reason why the CBA talks were successful with the WNBPA is because from moment one, there was a full conversation with them about this is what we're looking to accomplish. These are the things that matter. It was a large executive committee and the executive committee did the work of making sure all the rank and file players were fully informed and in what was going on in real time. And so without that type of consensus building, and there should be, and it, and, and it shouldn't be as difficult in women's soccer in the same way it shouldn't be that difficult in women's basketball because unfortunately there's a relatively small number of teams and so it's a smaller universe 
it should be possible. And it, it really needs to happen because you supercharge growth that way by making sure that everyone's on board to do it the same way. And when you have a whole bunch of people half in for logical reasons, that ends up hampering what you're trying to do. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. I mean, you did hit on my personal motto for the NWSL, which is it shouldn't have to be this hard, <laughs> which is <laughs> honestly the NWSL in one yeah. <laughs> one sentence across the board. I and, mean, it is hard, though, right? Yeah. Like, I, but, I mean, to but, build to build from nothing. Yes. And to build into the wind yes. of institutionalized sexism that exists, especially in the world of sports. It, it it is difficult, but I, I, the phrase I like to use is help us help you. There are many allies who can be deployed <laughs> or not deployed. Yes. Well, not even just allies, but, you know, accomplices, I would say. Fair enough. Yeah. Yes. Very good. Just in terms of coverage as well, because I think when you talk about allies, right, like, inherently what you or I do does not necessarily mean that we are enemies to mm-hmm. governing bodies, though obviously part of our job is to hold them accountable. Slash, I mean, like that has been a big chunk <laughs> of NWSL coverage as of late is is oh, yeah. trying to ensure that things get better, um, but mm-hmm. also that information is available. Like that is... A huge part of my job is just actually trying to figure out what is going on mm-hmm, <laughs> in any mm-hmm. given time. Um, but where, you know, obviously you're you're now kind of doing multiple different things right at the moment. And we are coming now from kind of two different landscapes of I have opted into a, a mainstream media site and trying to work within that system, whereas you are mm-hmm. trying to build kind of this new small thing and and raise it and both on a WNBA side, but also newsletters. And so how about you kind of lay out what your understanding of the landscape for 2021 is right at the moment? Sure. Well, and and by the way, I, I just, I think it's worth pointing out first why what you do is significant. If you don't mind, if you'll permit me to shout that out, okay. which is to say that, you said a fairly large amount of your job is to find out what's going on. Because there's been so much opacity in women's sports, that contributes to a lack of fan engagement as well. 
And having somebody who has planted a flag and is building on a regular basis, well, that's where good coverage comes from. But it's also where sustainable coverage comes from, by which I mean, people know they can go to you to find out what's going on in the world of women's soccer on a regular basis. And that really matters because, and we've lived this world, right? Where we're walking around like, what could possibly be the reason for that? <laughs> and, and not understanding that. And it does, it's, it's disorienting. It pushes you away. And so it's a very big deal, even though, like you said, there's a certain and, and more and more people did it, I think. But there's a certain understanding of like, no, we, more coverage does not mean doing PR for the league. Those are two different things. And in fact, you're better off. You're serving a different purpose toward what is the same end, which is to say that by having people get the real story about this thing, it draws them in. And it therefore does that service in a different way than PR ever could or ever would. And if you don't trust the reporter to be giving you the real story, then you're not going to be able to engage fully the way those who follow men's sports are able to take for granted. Mm -hmm. You know, and so as far as the landscape goes, to me, what I see is a couple of things. I see an opportunity for a massively increasing audience to be reached uh, and you can reach them in a lot of different ways they're willing to be reached in a lot of different ways whether that's an old school publication whether it's a new publication whether it's something big or whether it's something emerging ultimately people are looking for what it is they can trust you need to be doing it repeatedly you need to be doing it you know, every day, every week, every month, there needs to be an understanding. This is where you can go, where you can build a habit and people can understand this is what you're able to do to learn about the sport, to learn about what your team is doing, to learn about a particular player, to learn about big trends. All of those things go hand in hand. You also need, I believe, and, and this is where I think we're headed. It's why, you know, you mentioned... So I have the nine newsletter, which is across six different women's sports. And then the next, which is the 24 seven women's basketball newsroom and the women's basketball newsroom attacks the sport of women's basketball every single day from every angle. And we have 35 people doing it. The nine is making sure that there's no styling effect. And so even the very best coverage can only get as big as the audience for that particular sport unless and until you're connecting those things. And this is a thing that men's sports, again, is able to take for granted. What, what did we grow up doing? We grew up watching Sports Center, right? Sports Center, I'm watching, and I, you know, I want to see how the Mets did. Yeah. But while I'm waiting to see how the Mets did, you know, um, the, the Golden State Warriors made a trade. And, oh, well, we're on the subject. We're getting ready for the NFL. Oh, you know, look at what the Houston Oilers are doing. Let's go real old school, right? And so we do one after another after another, and there's an understanding of the sports landscape. Well, how often until relatively recently are we seeing those people who care about women's soccer have easy access to what's going on in women's basketball and have, you know, can understand the dynamics of the NWHL and the PWHP? Yeah. You know, I mean, there there are a host of different ways that men's sports. And again, a lot of it is investment. And that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But even just from like a media perspective, men's sports has gotten these sort of 
um, tailwinds that those of us operating in this space haven't seen to the same extent. And then as our industry at large has seen a whole lot of areas cut and cut and cut during a period that women's sports is emerging, you haven't seen that type of investment in part because there are places that aren't investing period. And in part, because you have sometimes backward thinking people who don't understand that your dollar is going to go a hell of a lot further. If you're becoming the primary place or among the primary places for people who follow Sue Bird, rather than writing the 51st story about LeBron James that day. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you. I'm definitely reading all 51 stories about LeBron James and all of my copious <laughs> amounts of free time. No, I, I mean, well, he is a Boston Red Sox. Owner, I, so, yes. you know, from yeah. that perspective. Yeah, that's true. I, I do now very much <laughs> follow. That is honestly one of the strangest things to wrap my brain around in terms of being like, yes, LeBron James is a Boston Red Sox owner who is going to have thoughts about this. It's just a very strange time. To be. I, would, I would argue Alex Rodriguez owning the Lynx, potentially even stranger. But That's fair. Yeah, <laughs> I see. It. Does Alex Rodriguez know the Lynx exist yet? Have we figured that out? So without giving away confidences or reporting, I understand that he has a greater understanding of the Lynx than he did a few weeks ago okay. well, when he put out a statement about how excited he was to be buying the Timberwolves alone, Sure. which I was aggravated on a Saturday night at a time where I should have just been relaxing. And instead I was just very frustrated that like, yeah, you know, and, and no disrespect intended to the Timberwolves. I mean, that's not a true statement. I probably shouldn't say that because that, that disrespect intended for the Timberwolves, because if you're buying the Timberwolves and the Lynx, right? The Lynx, have four championships. The Lynx have one of the preeminent figures in the game. Like we're going to be talking about Cheryl Reeve and our descendants are going to be talking about Cheryl Reeve for the next hundred years, right? <laughs> Maya Moore was a star on that team. Sylvia Fowles is a star on that team. And then you also bought the Timberwolves and the Timberwolves are where the focus goes. You're looking at yeah, the, yeah. Listen, Carla Anthony Towns, Jersey guy, you know, Jersey represent, but like, no, the Lynx are the, the diamond. Right. And the, the Timberwolves are like the, the beaten up case that holds the diamond. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. Um, All right. Let's, let's just end on, on one final NWSL note, but let's do a little round of predictions here, just in terms of who you've got taking challenge cup final this weekend. Mm -hmm. We can start there. Oh, I didn't know if we yeah, were doing all yeah. the questions at once. No, we'll, we'll do them one at a time. There's really only it, two questions. So it is Gotham. Gotham is going to win. It is going to surprise and shock the world. It is going to happen um, in part thanks to what we were talking about, and that is clutch performing by Carly Lloyd, which again is like woefully unfair to like a really interesting, like, like we should talk about lots of players on the team, but that's neither here nor there. I, it, that's how it's going to go. And it just feels like I walked around my house saying 2021 is not 2020. And there is progress. And there are infuriating, frightening things going on in the world right now. But there are these moments of like real 
hope and change that are occurring on a regular basis that are saying like the world is moving in a new direction. And I don't think Portland women would feel like, I mean, it would make a certain degree of sense for the reason we talked about, but I don't feel like it would mean the world is moving in a new direction. Gotham, that's not even a thing. That wasn't a team that existed six months ago. (laughs) They were called something else. So yeah, Gotham's going to win. That's what's going to happen this weekend. I am calling it. Okay. All right. And then my one other one is, do you have any thoughts yet? Obviously, NWSL now has this new uh, postseason thing where six teams are going to make it in, right? Which is kind of the anticipation of, in theory, we've got 12 teams coming into the league for 2022, (laughs) right? And we will be back to 50%. Obviously, our four teams is still kind of the holdover from when the the league started and we started with eight teams. So half the teams got into the postseason. We're now at six out of 10, right? So there probably is a little bit of wiggle room (laughs) here. Um, Maybe not necessarily your six teams getting in, but do you think there's a team where most people would expect them to make the playoffs that you don't think will make the playoffs or reversely that people are underselling right now that has the potential to like sneak into that six spot? Like you want to go real bold and say Louisville makes the playoffs this year in year one or... So I I don't want to say that. <laughs> I'm not prepared to say that. Yeah. I um, I, here's what here's what I will say, and and just speaking more generally about the six out of ten, it's a short enough schedule that I don't feel like having six out of ten teams in the playoffs is a bad thing. And again, I'm coming from a WNBA world where we've talked about for a long time eight out of 12 teams make it. And you consistently are seeing the reality of there are eight, at least playoff level teams. Well, I think that's where we are in NWSL as well. I mean, I don't think, you know, kind of turn it around. And this is, I think the easiest way to think about it. I don't think there are going to be four teams that are clearly non-playoff teams in NWSL this year. I, you know, Louisville's going to have some growing pains. Yeah without question, right? But can you say that any of these other teams are clearly not going to be playoff quality coming in? And so you play a shortened season, you play a season that's not, you know, it's not MLB where you did 162 games uh, and get a really good statistically representative sample. So making sure that there is a cutoff that allows for a reasonable number of teams to get in is something I can really get behind and I feel pretty good about. And, you know, let's talk again when we get to 12 and let's see what expansion does to rosters Yeah. and whether we're having a different set of conversation in much the same way the W needs expansion fundamentally because in what we were talking about with the Olympics, that there are Olympic level players who aren't going to be, on the U.S. national team, Olympic team, there are WNBA caliber players who are getting cut every single day. Yes. It keeps popping in yeah. my inbox. No, the WNBA are, roster situation is just truly, truly. Well, it's worse than before yeah. because the new CBA um, has changed the salary cap in such a way that you have a lot of teams logically going with 11 rather than 12. And so it's not, you know, it's all oh, the best 144. It's like 138, 137. You know, that's not an insignificant thing. So I really am curious, very, very curious what the level of play is like in NWSL when, let's say when, they get to 12 teams in 2022, because we're going to end on optimism, right? Yeah. 
And I do. I I, I think there will be 12 teams in 2022. So I don't know well, if it's going to necessarily look like what we thought it was going to look like, but I do. <laughs> I do think that we will probably land on, on 12 teams at this point. So. Well, you're where I get my information. <laughs> so. Yeah. I think that's a good note. I, I let we can both we can both bet on twelve teams for twenty twenty two. That can be our I like it. That can be our final final bet. <laughs> well, I'm all in for it, and I am very glad to hear it because it's overdue. There are more. We need more jobs. I, I mean, if you'll permit me, I know we were saying we're end on, but like there, the funnel of opportunity needs to widen. It just does. Yeah. You know, in the in the NBA. There are 900 domestic jobs and there are 130 something domestic jobs on the women's side because there's not even a G League. And the NBA has 450 regular roster spots and then a G League. Now we're seeing reserve teams uh, becoming more prevalent in NWSL and that's helping a little bit. But again, it, 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 need, it needs to be the case that if you are a professional women's soccer player, professional women's basketball player, you're not choosing, do I have to live overseas for the entirety of my 20s for a shot at it, or um, do I give up? Yeah. That has to change. Yeah. All right, Howard, tell folks where they can find your work. You can find me on Twitter at Howard Megdal, H-O-W-A-R-D-M-E-G-D-A-L. My incredible crew at The Next covers women's basketball tirelessly, at the next hoops is where you find us on Twitter. We have a giveaway right now. If you sign up for a membership, you can get WNBA League Pass on us. And the nine newsletter across six different women's sports, including Gymnastics Saturday, the great Jessica Taylor Price has joined us at the THEIX newsletter, uh, named obviously after uh, Title Nine. Yes. Um, those are, I, I do other stuff other places, of course, but. That's those are the main places uh, to come find. Yeah. And I I will say the newsletter also includes Annie Peterson, who has been on this podcast covering women's soccer every Monday, every Monday. So (laughs) and links to what everyone is doing, um, you know, because if I can, that that lifting is so vital. Right. Like you're doing the work in an individualized place for an editor who may or may not be all in on it. And you may get to do it very occasionally and making sure you're reaching that cohesive audience is the key to making sure you get to do the next one because the numbers reflect that you have an audience for it. It is so vital. It's why more is more and why we all have to work together and why what you said made is so true. Like you and I, we've been in the same place, we've been in different places, but we're on the same team in, in this for that fundamental way. And I'm really honored to be on your team. <laughs> All right, let's <laughs> let's cut it there before you start saying nice things about me and I have to Sorry. sign off a Zoom. My bad. But <laughs> all right, Howard, thank you for being on the show. I definitely appreciate the time. Always, always, always. Thank you to both Paul and Howard for their time. I will be back next week with Steph Young, who obviously has been on the show before and who is Fortunately, very much back in the mix with us here at The Athletic as we gear up for the regular season. So also, please let me know if you have specific things that you would like us to predict around the 2021 season. And honestly, the weirder the better. That is, I think, where we excel. All right. One more thing. I did want to just flag a couple of events that folks might be interested in via Women in Soccer, uh, which is 
uh, an organization that Brandy Chastain is very involved in. So first, Brandy is hosting an event on women in sports journalism. That's on the evening of May 12th. And folks who listen to the show will obviously know me, but also Steph is in this. And Sandra Herrera is also in the mix for that one. And then Women in Soccer also has a career fair on May 19th. And that's just like a lot more than just journalism. So for both uh, of these events, if you want more information, it's womeninsoccer.org, pretty easy, or at womeninsoccerus on Twitter. And of course, as always, the home for the show is at fulltimepod.com. You can find links to all the major podcast platforms. And if you are enjoying the show, as always, your reminder that ratings and reviews do make a difference. And I do read them all. My name is Meg Linehan, and you have been listening to a show that my name is in the title, and I think you know what it is. But as always, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at It's Meg Linehan and my work at The Athletic. Of course, full-time does not exist without the work and support of senior podcast producer Michael Zimmerman. I'm Meg, and thank you for listening. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.